welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We're the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. A special hello to all of our new listeners as we now are part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network and working in partnership with the Guadalupe Radio Network. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm joined in studio by my dear friend, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer, also of the Catholic Association. Now, Gracie calls me the Catholic Association's legal eagle, but I'm just a little hatchling compared to our guest this week. Joining us in a bit will be John Birch of the Alliance Defending Freedom, and we're going to get John's reaction to the idea that priests be mandatory reporters of child abuse, even if they learn about the abuse in the confessional. And John's also going to give us a, an overview of the cases currently before the Supreme Court. And joining us in that conversation will be our other Catholic Association colleague, Ashley McGuire. But first, we have a special little treat for everyone. As most of our listeners probably already know, the seal of confession or the seal of the confessional is the absolute duty of priests not to disclose anything that they learn from penitents during the course of the sacrament of penance. And we have joining with us um, a wonderful priest from Salem, Oregon, Father Timothy Makaitis, who successfully defended the seal in federal court in the mid-1990s, and he's graciously accepted our invitation to briefly share his experience and insight. Welcome, Father. How are you? We're great, Father. Would you tell us a little bit about uh, what led up to you having to go to court? Well, in April of 1996, I had been visiting a local jail in Eugene, Oregon, where I was stationed at the time, and uh, visiting with various inmates when I was asked to come in for about nine months or so, up until this incident took place. And um, the gentleman that was a personer of mine and had a particular jail ministry, and he would visit with various uh, various jail inmates, and if they requested to see a priest uh, for advice or for uh, sacrament of penance, then he would asked me to go. I was his pastor. So everything was as normal, and I went in April of 96 to a request. It was a young man that had been jailed. He was a suspect in the triple homicide. He had not yet been accused, but he had been jailed, and he was about 21, 22 years old at the time. He requested to uh, to visit with a priest and to, if I would hear his confession. I did not know who he was. I didn't know what he was accused of. I, I knew nothing other than I received his name when I went to the jail. And as I said, it was a routine visit. Uh, the jail had made it clear months before they didn't want me wandering through the jail, which I thought was a strange wording because I had no intention of wandering through the jail. But I was visiting with the inmate in the visitor's area. There was never anyone else in the visitor's area. There was a sign in the visitor's area that made it very clear, no recording equipment allowed, which I, of course, I said, well, of course not. They knew exactly why I was coming to hear his confession. I had been there a number of times before for the same purpose. There was no sign anywhere indicating that there would be a possible, you know, conversations would be recorded. There was nothing indicating that at all. And Father, and, you were uh, you were dressed in clergyman attire. Oh yeah, they, they of course they they knew who they knew who I was. I'd been there a number of times before. I heard the confession of this young man and then left. And just as all routine, then about ten days later, I received a phone call from a local newspaper reporter. Just called me out of the blue and said that he had been going through court records looking for news, and he discovered a copy of a search warrant that had been issued by a local judge giving the police and the jail permission to listen to this tape-recorded confession. And they knew it was a sacramental confession. In fact, the, the search warrant itself described that this, who I was, what my purpose was, the sacrament, the expectation of confidentiality, all of that. They knew exactly what they were doing, and they did it secretly. And then I was shocked. I was sure the reporter had it wrong. No, he didn't. It was exactly what, what it sounded like. So I called our auxiliary bishop at the time. We, we were awaiting a new bishop. The new bishop who eventually came to us was Francis George. He was made our Bishop of Portland at the time, he was he saw this case entirely through. So the wheels started turning immediately, uh, contacted a priest in the Archdiocese who had been a former attorney himself, and he became a very articulate spokesperson for the Church, defending this. And so 
we from the rest is history and it went all the way up local local courts and went to the state court it went to the federal court the ninth circuit court of appeals always pleading that the tape be destroyed that it be declared unconstitutional and father so was was the tape eventually yeah. made public was the contents of the confession made public not that i know of the trial of the young man took place after in i think it was march or so of 97 97 or 98 and it was by then he had been accused of the triple murder. It was found guilty, and he's on death row to this day. He is still on death row here in Oregon, and we don't have a death penalty at this time. There's a moratorium on it here in the state, thank God. Your father, you're a, you're a person who takes the seal of confession very seriously. You would have uh, accepted even martyrdom. Yes, ultimately. So it was about a nine-month process. We shot up the case all the way up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals by December of that same year, by December of 96. It, it was expedited that quickly because we kept get the state kept resisting our demands and kept trying to make excuses for what they had done. And um, what's what's so wonderful about it, Father, in the end, um, is that the panel decided that the long tradition of respecting the seal of the confession was upheld, and that that right. surreptitious recording wasn't made public. And even though exactly. it's been archived away so it was it was great great kind of courage on your behalf and cardinal george's to continue to kind of defend what's so important for all of us and for for your priesthood well thank you father for joining us and putting a human face and a real situation behind uh, what's a very very important uh, thing to all catholics thank you father right okay god bless bye-bye thank you now we are delighted and very honored to have a friend of ours from michigan John Bursch, who is the senior counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom, joining us to talk about a lot of exciting things that are coming up in the Supreme Court, where, I might add, he has defended or uh, 11 different cases, or has argued before the court on 11 different cases. That, that's really impressive. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for having me. John, we just heard from Father Timothy Makaitis out in Salem, Oregon. And as you know, Father Makaitis was at the center of an interesting case in the 1990s out of the Ninth Circuit dealing with a seal of confession. Does the abuse crisis that we're going through right now threaten to bring about new challenges to respect for the seal of confession? It absolutely does. Uh, we were kind of hoping that when that Court of Appeals decision came out in Father Makaitis's case those years ago, that that would be the end of the matter. But increasingly now we're seeing state legislatures proposing bills that would invade the confessional seal, specifically by requiring priests to report when someone confesses a crime to them. And you know, obviously the abuse crisis is, is terrible, and the Church has done many, many things to address that. Uh, but the idea of breaking the confessional seal is a solution in search of a problem. There's no evidence anywhere that um, abusers are confessing to their priests and not talking to other people. And it has huge constitutional ramifications because of the separation of church and state. Now, John, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe California proposed a law like this that didn't go through, and I think also Utah tried this? That's correct. Um, and, and in both cases, the, the Catholic Church, including large, large numbers of lay people, especially in California, turned out to lobby their legislators and explain to them how horrific this would be to invade the Church's prerogative in this way. I understand that the Missouri uh, legislature is considering a similar bill right now. And what I would urge all of those legislators to do is look at the Supreme Court's cases interpreting the First Amendment, because they say very clearly that the government is not in a position where it should be interfering with the way that a church goes about doing church business. Would you, would you, cons- would you say to people who live in a state like Missouri, where this is being considered, that they should communicate with their lawmakers? Uh, and tell them how Absolutely. they feel? This is the perfect time to communicate with your state senator or your state representative. Often state Catholic conferences will have materials that can help you better understand the issue. Uh, but really it comes down to the government not being allowed to interfere with church structure and decisions and things like that. Just like the government couldn't tell you what kind of wine to use at communion or how to baptize a baby, they can't tell the church what kind of privilege should attach to confession. John, I think there's a lot of um, people, you know, especially moms like myself. I have three little children, one of whom was just asked if he wants to be an altar boy, um, who, you know, 
completely support and respect um, the importance of the seal of confession, but may in the back of their heads be wondering, um, is there is there any evidence that violating the seal could identify an abuser or a victim that might not come to light in another way? There is zero evidence right now that somehow secrets are being shared in confession with respect to abuse that are not being communicated in other ways. And keep in mind, too, that one of the things that a priest would do as part of a confession where someone came and even confessed a petty crime, you know, say, stealing something, shoplifting from a store, would be to encourage that person to go to the authorities and report it. What we do know is that under the Protecting God's Children programs that the Catholic Church in the United States has put in place, that there is no institution in the entire country that is safer for children since 2002 than the Catholic Church. And that includes our churches, our after-school ministries, Catholic schools, altar-serving, you name it. John, you're an an expert on the Supreme Court, obviously, having argued there 11 times. Could you see a case like this going all the way to the Supreme Court? Oh, absolutely. If there was a state that were to pass a law that violates the seal of the confessional, I'm quite sure that that is a case that would be taken all the way up the chain if necessary. And I, I feel very confident that the U.S. Supreme Court would, in a, you know, an overwhelming decision, confirm that state officials do not have the ability to direct the Catholic Church in how it conducts its sacraments. Well, what was great in the, the case of Father Machaitis, it was um, the courage not only of Father Machaitis, but of Cardinal Francis George uh, in bringing this and, and the clarity of the Ninth Circuit, which is sometimes not known for clear decision-making, but the panel definitely, <laughs> definitely supported um, both our great tradition of respecting religious freedom and um, the respect for, for confession in general. John, the, the Holy See recently addressed the issue of the seal of confession in a note on the importance of what they called the internal forum and the inviability of the sacramental seal. You're a faithful Catholic and a father of a large family. What are your thoughts on the Vatican reinforcing that not even civil authorities should be interfering with the sacredness of confession? Well, that was very encouraging to me, both as a lawyer and as a father, for two reasons. First, it was a clear signal to priests, bishops, archbishops, and cardinals that this is something that's worth fighting for. And so if the government is going to try to impinge on the confessional seal, they need to stand up for that, just the same way that the diocese did in Father Mekaitis' case. Uh, The other thing is that um, I'm, I'm comforted by the expression of the importance of that because of what it means for confession itself. Uh, If people think that the priest could go and tell the sins that they confess to someone else, whether it's a government official or anyone else, what's going to happen? They're going to stop confessing their sins. They're going to stop going to confession altogether. And this is one of the most beautiful sacraments that we have in the Catholic Church. It's an opportunity to have that sin wiped away and to to start with a clean slate. And so for anything to impinge on that... um, it would just be a terrible tragedy for the Church, and it's one of the many reasons that the Ninth Circuit ruled the way that it did. It recognized that the salvation of souls to the Church, which is what confession is all about, was more important than the government getting information that they might otherwise not be able to get from that confession conversation. You know, there's also something really special about the sacrament of confession to us Catholics. There's there's a mystical feeling around the confessional, right, that you can go there, you can pour out your heart, and that the priest, and all of us Catholics know this, the priest has the duty to go all the way to martyrdom before he can share even a little smidgen of what you told him in that privacy of the confessional. I think uh, it, it distinguishes us from from many other faiths, even other Christian faiths, that kind of amazing, uh, that strength that the Church puts into that sacrament and how spectacular, how spectacularly connected we are to God inside the confessional. Absolutely. It is beautiful and mystical, and it is one of the things that distinguishes us as Catholics, because um, other even Christian denominations don't have a sacrament of confession. Um, You might talk directly to God about your sins, you might try to repent personally, but only priests have the ability to absolve you of your sins. Uh, And what a beautiful gift that is from Jesus Christ and His Church to all of us. We were speaking um, a few weeks ago with Mary Hassan from the Ethics and Public Policy Center about the horrible case of Theodore McCarrick. And one of Mary's observations was that while so many people knew 
um, about McCarrick's wrongdoings and about the abuse that was going on, there was an opportunity for a correction. And and maybe McCarrick never confessed his bad behavior. Um, we don't know. But when we think about the confessional being an opportunity not only for forgiveness but for correction, putting people right back on, and if they've got a problem, giving them the direction to seek out help and support. So I think that you're you're right, John, in talking about this is something that we need to think about, um, not only to save souls and to correct people who are maybe in a pattern of of uh, bad behavior, but also to protect victims. Um, there's nothing better than good counsel to kind of put someone right back on the on the correct path in how they deal with other people. You know, no this question. term. And, and Go ahead, John. I was just going to add that you know that that whole situation with McCarrick is a, a perfect example of why breaking the confessional seal is unnecessary. There were plenty of other people who were aware of the misconduct that was taking place, and it was a failure of those people to come forward mm-hmm. and for the, the church to properly hear those allegations and do something about it, uh, not a confessional seal that prevented that abuse from continuing. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences by the Catholic Association, and we're talking to John Birch from the Alliance Defending Freedom. We've been discussing the implications of laws attacking the seal of com- Confession, but now we're going to switch gears and talk about some big cases that we are looking forward to watching and maybe some of us arguing at the Supreme Court <laughs> in this coming year in 2020. John, um, the Supreme Court does not have a sleepy term at all this year, in my opinion, uh, especially when it comes to issues that we all care about, um, particularly cases involving abortion and attacks on religious freedom. To get us started, John, could you get us up to speed on an important case that's going to be argued next week on March 3rd uh, involving the state of Louisiana and a very simple law regulating abortion? Yes, uh, uh, Louisiana legislators understood that women who are seeking abortions need the same quality of medical care as women and men seeking any other kind of surgical procedure from a doctor. And so they imposed a requirement that uh, abortionists, abortion doctors, have uh, hospital licensing privileges. And that protects women in two ways. First, it ensures that you've got a competent doctor, because hospitals will not give admitting privileges to just anyone. So it's kind of like a second layer of protection of patients. In addition, having that licensing admitting privilege allows you to have continuity of care in case there's a problem. So if the abortionist would perforate the woman's uterus, or if there was a problem with preeclampsia, then that person could be rushed immediately to the hospital. Now, the problem is that Texas passed a similar law, and the U.S. Supreme Court only a few years ago struck down Texas's law and said that it unduly impinged on a woman's right to abortion. And so some are saying, well, that case should control this one, too. But there are important differences between the Louisiana law and the Texas law. Um, <clears throat> John, I think uh, folks on, on the other side of the issue, their their main argument is that this is just sort of a political ploy um, to restrict women's access to abortion. Um, but in some of the briefing um, that's before the Supreme Court, there's extensive documentation of uh, the many um, sort of horrifying ways that these clinics are jeopardizing the safety of women. Um, can you expand a little bit on that and and why um, you think this has uh, this case is going to be so compelling before the Supreme Court? Well, it's that evidence that makes this case so different than Texas, because here there was a legislative record that showed abortionists in Louisiana were doing an absolutely terrible job. If there was a problem with a, a patient, for example, the doctor might leave them on the table for hours at a time and not take them to get appropriate medical treatment. There were some clinics that did not sterilize the instruments in between procedures. There were others that failed to report to government officials cases of statutory rape before performing an an abortion on a minor. Um, When there were investigations and questions about how things were going in those clinics, they destroyed their records. And in one clinic, they actually hired and trained an ophthalmologist and an anesthesiologist to perform abortions, even though they had no qualifications or experience to do that. It's absolutely unbelievable. 
And as for the, the burden on those who are seeking an abortion, unlike in Texas, where the Supreme Court concluded that some women might have to drive 500 miles or more to get to an open clinic, the Federal Court of Appeals in the Louisiana case concluded that at most women would have to wait one additional hour in order to obtain their abortion. So when you weigh that very, very modest restriction against all the terrible atrocities that were happening to women, um, it was a pretty easy decision for the Court of Appeals to say that this law was valid, even though the Texas one was not. So, John, just to clarify for our listeners, what the law was asking the doctors, the, the abortion clinics to do was that the doctors that were performing abortions at the clinic should have admitting privileges at the local hospital. So what happens when a doctor goes to get admitting privileges at a hospital is there's this long background check that's done on the doctor, and um, they go through all these, uh, the history of the doctor. Does he have a history of incompetence? Does he have a history of multiple lawsuits? And... And then they refuse hospital privileges because then the hospital becomes liable when the, when the doctor comes and he, he, he makes a horrible mess, right, and, and kills a patient, as has happened. Uh, one th- another issue, um, so that was a, that's a reason why the doctors should have the admitting privileges because then they get screened out. The bad actors get screened out, as you mentioned. But there's another reason also when a doctor gets uh, admitting privileges, he has to have malpractice insurance. Uh, in order to practice at the hospital. And I would guess that a lot of these uh, abortionists at these, at these clinics don't even have malpractice insurance because their history is so checkered and they're, they're so, and there's so many bla- you know, red flags that come up when you look them up that they are not even able to get malpractice. Now, that doesn't matter from the patient's perspective, but it matters because it means that um, they should not be performing these procedures on these women that are at the mercy of these incompetent doctors. Well, that, that's right. And, and actually, it does matter a great deal to the patient, because if the doctor is incompetent and negligent, then at least malpractice insurance gives them an opportunity to get some compensation for whatever harm has been done to them. That's and, true. And when you're talking about that, it, it actually raises a, a good point about a second issue in the case, and that's about whether the abortion clinics and the abortion doctors even have a right to bring a lawsuit like this. Exactly. Because everything that we've been (laughs) talking about, the the protection of women, the health of women, the safety of women, um, are all interests that are in conflict with the abortion doctor, who simply wants to remove as many regulations as he or she can so that they can make more money. Now, in any other context outside of abortion, when you have someone who tries to invoke someone else's rights, it's called third-party standing, their interests have to be the same. But here, the interests of abortion doctors and the women that they perform abortions on go in opposite directions. Uh, the, the analogy would be like if you had an employer who had a really dangerous workplace, and they were suing on behalf of their employees to invalidate OSHA laws and other safety regulations that were intended to protect those employees. Or if an automaker sued on behalf of consumers to invalidate national transportation safety regulations that keep those consumers safe. The court would never allow the automaker or the employer of the, with the dangerous work site to bring those lawsuits. And the court shouldn't allow abortion doctors and abortion clinics to bring these lawsuits either. John, you, um, I, I find that this issue of standing to be fascinating, and not just because I'm a lawyer, but because I, I definitely think that the courts are places where people who are aggrieved should go to for relief. And it's driven me crazy thinking that abortionists are able to go to court basically to avoid any kind of regulation, you know, almost as if there's an Uber right um, that, that they have instead of the women that they should be caring for and and the health and safety of these women. Do you think, um, you mentioned before that the Texas case, and I remember um, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a dissent from that Texas case where he really, you know, argues that this notion of abortionists and abortion clinics having uh, a right to get into the courthouse uh, is really off. Um, do you think that n- now the court is in a position to really um, write its third-party standing rules in, in abortion cases to fix this? Well, 
I, I certainly hope so. And, and what's brilliant about Justice Thomas's dissent in the Texas case is that he goes through a whole bunch of different factors where the court treats abortion cases differently than all of its other cases, mm-hmm. where abortion, you know, which went from not even being mentioned anywhere in the Constitution to somehow becoming a constitutional right, has now become some super constitutional right that you know, nothing can penetrate. It's, it's really bizarre. Uh, but on the standing issue in particular, that the court didn't have the opportunity to address it head-on in the Texas case the way it wanted to, because that issue had not been raised. And over the last 10 years, the court has really been cleaning up its standing jurisprudence in other cases, making clear when people can come into court and when they cannot. And so I do think that this is a perfect opportunity for them to fix the third-party standing problem and make sure that abortion cases are treated like other cases. And if they do that, um, 80% of the cases that are filed about abortion these days are filed by clinics and doctors. And so all of those would go away. You know, Andrea, you mentioned Uber, and I was it just sort of gave me a different example or parallel, which is imagine if Uber was out there actively lobbying against uh, safety Background regulations checks. for passengers. <laughs> it, but there, it's just such an example of how, what an aberration the abortion industry is, because what Uber has done is embraced and promoted and touted these laws and regulations and reforms, and you get like an alert saying, this is our latest thing that's here to help enhance your safety. Why is the abortion industry so radically different? I think it points to, you know, where their interests are and aren't. Hmm. And when we see those cases like Gosnell and Ulrich, what was his name? The one with the 2,400 fetal corpses? Klopfner. (laughs) Klopfner. I mean, you know that some of these people are ghoulish. I mean, they're they're abortionists because they have fallen down to the bottom of the barrel. And this is what they have left to do. And there's something like deeply wrong with them that this is what they do for a living. Well, and, and I don't think I'm exaggerating there. <laughs> well, the money, the money interest, John, you mentioned is um, that there's a lot of money behind advocating for no regulation whatsoever. Uh, and so yeah, we're, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and just to be clear, uh, an abortion clinic has the right to lobby the government for whatever they want. If they want to say no safety regulations for us, they can do that. But once the legislature says safety, they don't have the right to sue on behalf of women to try to make them less safe. We're going to take a a short break right now, but stay tuned and we continue to speak with John Birch from the Alliance Defending Freedom as we discuss important cases being decided this year. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences, the weekly radio show of the Catholic Association. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm here with my colleagues, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer and Ashley McGuire, as well as a very honored guest, John Birch from the Alliance Defending Freedom, who knows everything about the law, (laughs) especially the law about religious freedom and the Supreme Court, where he's argued 11 cases. I'm so impressed with that, John. And one of the cases that's being reviewed by the Supreme Court this term involves Title VII's prohibition against employment discrimination because of sex. And John, tell us about the employers that you represent. Absolutely. Um, So we argued the Harris Funeral Homes case last October. It was actually my my 12th argument at the U.S. Supreme Court. And it's one of the most consequential (laughs) cases that the court has decided in years. So just a little back background for everyone. Harris Funeral Homes is a family-owned business that has been serving grieving families in the Detroit area for more than 100 years. And as you can imagine, they have rules and regulations to make sure that the focus of their grieving clients can be on processing their grief, not on the funeral home and its employees. And so one of those rules is a sex-specific dress code that has been in place for many years. It's fully in accord with federal law. The funeral home hired a biological male, Anthony Stevens, to be a, a funeral director at the funeral home. And a funeral director is the face of the funeral home. They're usually one of the very first people that the family meets after their loved one has died, and then they kind of orchestrate things as they go forward. And for six years, uh, there was no problem. Stevens agreed to and abided by that sex-specific dress policy, and, and everything was fine. Well, after six years, Stevens came to the funeral home owner, Tom Rost, and said that um, he was actually a woman trapped in a man's body and that he planned to dress and present as a woman when meeting with the grieving families of the funeral home. And, and this kind of took Tom aback. Uh, he was not expecting this. Um, his thoughts immediately went to Stevens, the employee, and everything that Stevens must be going through. Um, obviously, this was a, a huge issue. Um, and Stevens was also married and thought about Stevens' wife. 
Tom also thought about the other employees that he had at the funeral home because his women employees, including an 80-year-old employee, would all be sharing the same bathroom facility with Stevens. And he also thought about the impact on the grieving families. And after thinking about it, praying about it, he decided this was a plan that he just could not go along with, and the funeral home and Stevens parted ways. Well, this resulted in a lawsuit and ultimately a decision in a federal court of appeals that said when Congress prohibited discrimination based on sex in 1964, they included uh, transgender identity, and that somehow this statute, which everyone for decades has always understood as protecting women and men because of their sex, an employer can't treat a woman worse than a man because she's a woman or vice versa, all of a sudden applied to transgender claims as well. There were two other cases that the court consolidated for argument involving the same question as it pertained to sexual orientation. And so for purposes of these two cases, or three cases actually, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to decide what sex means in federal law. And as we can kind of talk about in in more detail, that has incredible consequences for everyone. John, with regard to sexual orientation, are they arguing, the proponents of sexual orientation being included, that orientation is an identity or is it behavior-based? Is it different than transgender identity in the legal argument? They're kind of collapsing those and just saying that it's a status, that when you talk about discrimination based on sex, if you treat someone differently because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity, that is differential treatment based on sex. But of course, the original public understanding of sex in 1964, as it is today, is biological sex, male and female, that can be determined objectively unchanging. Uh, you know, whereas these characteristics they're talking about um, are entirely subjective and mm-hmm. sometimes are subject to change. The, the claim is that your orientation might change numerous times over your life and that you could choose from any one of nearly 100 gender <laughs> identities. And those could change sometimes, you know, within Unicorn. the same week or even the same day. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and so the, the barrier they have to get over is what the, the public meaning of sex was in 1964. Um, and I just don't see how they can do that. But if you do change the meaning of sex, it has consequences for employers, for employees, um, but also for women's shelters, and especially in um, women's athletics, where, as you probably heard, there are boys who identify as girls who are now competing against and winning uh, in girls' track meets. For example, 15 state championships in Connecticut just over the last two years alone. And these are and these are boys that were competing on the boys' team three weeks earlier and losing, and now they're winning on the girls' team. I just needed to interject that. <laughs> Yes, yeah, they, they went from very mediocre runners in the boys' track and field events to state champions in the, the girls' events. And yet when the, the girls' parents complained in those cases to the Title IX officer in Connecticut, um, they were told that girls have the right to participate, but they don't have the right to win, which, of course, is the exact nice. opposite of what the federal law about not discriminating based on sex and athletics is all about. And it just goes to show what... Uh, a total flipping upside down of federal mm-hmm. law will occur if sex is redefined. John, I'm really passionate about this, and I wrote a book about this. came out three years ago, and I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal that I didn't choose this title. They did Justice Ginsburg, A Woman Isn't a Demiboy. And it's, you know, it's sort of, it amazes me to see how much velocity there's been just in the three years that I, since I wrote the book, in fact, especially on the athletic thing, I remember having to triple check sources because I thought it was so hard to comprehend that this could actually be happening. And the thing that blows my mind is, you know, if we redefine sex, it's not just that we're redefining sex. It's it's that we're actually sort of flipping it back and weaponizing it on women. And I think mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of examples where a law that was designed to protect women, women will find themselves in a situation where they're being accused of discrimination for for invoking that very law and you know so i think it's it's important to stress how much this could impact women and i think you know I, I would love to hear your take but i think we're really just sort of at the tip of the iceberg because again the the things i was just starting to write about 3 years ago you mentioned women's shelters athletics are now you know already turning into lawsuits Yeah, well, let's start just with the example of Justice Ginsburg. Um, There's a scholarship named in her honor for women who are attending law school. But if the court rules in favor of the other parties in these cases and redefines sex, then all of a sudden it would be, be illegal 
for them to hold that scholarship for biological women. If there was a man who identified as a woman, they'd have to give it to the man. Um, the women's shelter, that's already happened. Um, up in Alaska, hmm. the city of Anchorage was insisting that a women's shelter take a man who was yeah. identifying as a woman. And these are women the oftentimes that have been victims of sexual abuse and, and rape that are in shelters. And they have to exactly. sleep with a, you know, in the same area of a, a man? Yeah, that, that was the city's position, that the shelter had to allow the man to sleep in the same room, mere feet away from women who had been <laughs> raped, trafficked, and abused. And, and yet, people on the other side of this debate seem to be fine with that. Um, we were fortunately able to get a federal court to stop the city from doing that. There, there was an injunction in that case. Um, with respect to the athletes, um, lawsuits were just filed on behalf of three young women in Connecticut over the women's track and field events um, just in the last two weeks here, and those are going to be working through the system. I know that there are more of those um, issues coming, but this also applies to women's privacy spaces. If you think about schools or even work, showers, restrooms, overnight facilities, locker rooms, um, with any of those, anybody who identifies as the opposite gender or both genders or neither gender would be allowed to pick the privacy space of their their choice, even though those privacy spaces were created specifically to protect women. And so that's why um, all kinds of different groups have gotten behind these cases in favor of maintaining the law the, the way it is, um, even those who are you know, self-described strident feminists because they realize the impacts that this is going to have on women. And I, I should note that it has huge implications for the rule of law, too, because the Congress has considered more than 50 proposals to add sexual orientation to federal anti-discrimination laws and a dozen proposals to add gender identity, and each and every time they've declined to do that. And what is happening here, our activists are trying to get the court to do what they've been unable to get Congress to do. If you're just tuning in, it's now 38 minutes past the hour, and you're listening to Conversations with Consequences by the Catholic Association on EWTN Radio. We're talking with John Birch from the Alliance Defending Freedom, and we've been talking about these incredible cases, a series of cases that the Supreme Court is addressing, looking at the issue of the definition of sex under anti-discrimination laws. And I'd like to pivot to another case that we've been watching, everyone's been watching, for far too many years, and that's involving the sweet little sisters of the poor and a religious order of nuns that is serving the poor and elderly want to do so without having to violate Catholic teaching on against the use of contraception, abortion, and sterilizations. And they're back in the Supreme Court again. This time, the federal government is supporting the sisters. John, what's going on? That's a change. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I heard way back when this first, got, this first got started that if you're on the opposite side of a case from the Little Sisters of the Poor, then you're doing something wrong. <laughs> and I still believe that's true today. At least the optics. Um, the optics are horrible. Yes. Uh, this all started with the Affordable Care Act, our national health insurance statute. And when Congress enacted it, they left a lot of the details to be worked out by agencies. And that included what kinds of things employers would be able to or would be forced to have in their health plans with respect to women's health. So specifically, the federal agency at that time said that contraception would be included in these plans. Every employer would have to adopt those. And that would include all manners of uh, um, artificial contraception approved by the FDA, um, including abortifacients. And they exempted churches, but nobody else. And as you can imagine, um, all kinds of people objected to that. And so your listeners may have heard of the Hobby Lobby case. That was the first case involving this issue to reach the Supreme Court. And in that one, the Supreme Court said that religiously minded, closely held businesses that didn't want to provide abortifacients because they objected to them on religious grounds did not have to do so, that they were protected by the federal um, religious protection. Well, that didn't solve the problem for a number of the religious and non-religious nonprofits who continued to not want to provide these kinds of things. And the federal agencies made a small accommodation for them, but it wasn't a very good one. It required them to sub submit a piece of paper to the federal government so the federal government could force their insurance mm -hmm. or their plan administrator to provide abortifacients and contraception for them. You know, so it'd be like... So their hands are still dirty. <laughs> Right. You, you don't actually have to provide abortifacients and contraception, but we're going to send someone into your workplace and hand them out to anybody who wants them. And if you object to that, you don't have any right to do that. So that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And that case never really got resolved because the court wanted the government to settle the case. 
And for a long time, it just kind of sat out there. John, that was kind of... President Trump was elected. That... that um was very unusual, right? That the Supreme Court sent the case back for the parties to resolve their differences. Or did did you see that coming? No, I don't think anyone saw that coming. I think if you looked at the last 10 years of U.S. Supreme Court cases, that might be the only example where they stopped short of issuing a merits ruling and said, go see if you can work this out before we answer the questions that you pose to us. But under the, the new presidential administration, the Health and Human Services Agency adopted a much broader exemption that protects religious and non-religious groups, like my client, March for Life, um, who have an objection to providing abortifacients or artificial contraception in their health plans. And so what happened? California and a dozen other states immediately sued and said that that exemption was invalid, um, which on its face is kind of an absurd claim. Um, But the states were successful in two different federal courts of appeals in having the exemption struck down. And now the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear the case. And they're going to decide not whether you're entitled to some exemption in the abstract, but whether the agency had authority to protect religious and non-religious conscience rights when they adopted the regulation as part of the administrative process. John, when we were talking earlier about transgender things, one of the things that worries me a lot is in medicine, I'm a doctor, being made to participate in surgeries or hormonal treatments for people who suffer from gender dysphoria, which I I believe is a mutilation being done to relieve a psychological disorder. A lot of doctors believe what I believe. So do you think that uh, the Little Sisters, hopefully winning again at the Supreme Court, will protect also health plans and people from having to participate in other things they find unconscionable, even even if it's not from a, from a religious perspective, just from an ethical uh, perspective? Well, I don't think the court will issue a ruling that has direct impact on those types of cases, although I hope it uses broad enough language that can be used in those, because we are in a very different world today when it comes to conscience protection than we were even when Roe versus Wade was decided back in the 1970s. The same day that Roe came out in the companion case, Doe versus Bolton, the Supreme Court commenced the state of Georgia for having statutory protections that ensured that doctors would not have to participate in abortions if they thought that that was against their religious beliefs or it violated their conscience. And, and pretty much for the next 40 years, whether federal or state legislators and courts, they always protected those types of conscience rights. It wasn't until the original contraceptive mandate under the last administration, where for the very first time, religious and non-religious organizations were being forced to do things, medical coverage, that violated their consciences. And you can see it now with Catholic hospitals, too. They're being challenged when they decline to do um, hysterectomies and things like that um, that are, are not medically necessary. They're purely to contracept or, in some instances, to create a gender transition against the ethical and religious directives for Catholic health care. Um, it's coming up in all kinds of contexts. And so I'm afraid that there's going to be a lot of court cases over that very issue in the next couple of years because people have forgotten how to get along. John, it's interesting that we've been dealing with um, abortion and contraception for, I guess, most of our lifetimes. But there's there's another case that the Supreme Court's dealing with that goes back to over 100 years, and that's Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue and something called the Blaine Amendments. Here at the Catholic Association, we filed a, a brief in the Supreme Court celebrating religious schools, particularly Catholic schools, as being options that are very important for families to have. But Blaine Amendments, these no-aid provisions in 37 state constitutions have prevented even simple things like tax incentives. What do you think is going to happen with the Espinosa case? I'm so glad you brought that up. And just a little history for your listeners about Blaine Amendments. They were originally the idea of a U.S. Senator Blaine in the 1800s who wanted to amend our U.S. Constitution to prohibit any federal funds from flowing to sectarian schools. Um, parochial schools at the time, Catholic schools. Um, And and everybody acknowledges that it was an anti-Catholic measure done to discriminate against Catholics. Um, It didn't succeed at the federal level, but as you mentioned, numerous states adopted it, and it's used today to prevent tax credits, scholarship programs, and other types of school choice, frankly, to prevent any funding from flowing to Catholic or other religious schools at all. 
Um, I think it's blatantly in violation of the First Amendment, which says that you cannot discriminate against religious organizations because they are religious. And I think the U.S. Supreme Court took the case so that they could issue a broad ruling uh, that says these Blaine Amendments are unconstitutional because they violate the First Amendment. All of us on this interview have children in parochial schools, and we we would all love to see parochial schools, uh, especially parochial schools, but all religious schools, have that kind of, even a little bit of government support that opens up the doors for these schools to people who can't afford private school tuitions, which, and and these people are the people who most need private school tuitions, I think, in many cases. And, you know, and referring back to our transgender issue, as the public schools are taken over by transgender ideology and all that that implies, Catholic schools are real safe haven for our nation's children. It would be wonderful to see them grow again because they have been in decline. You know, the sheer numbers have been in decline over so many years. Yeah, we we have here in Michigan one of these plain amendments that prohibits money from flowing, actually, in Michigan to any of the private schools. And yet it's the kids in the worst performing school mm-hmm. districts in mm-hmm. you know the city of Detroit, for example, who are being shut out from the opportunity to attend one of these really good schools. And, and that's a, a shame. And you would think everybody should be able to support poor families and their children who want to attend quality schools, but that doesn't seem to be the case. More generally, I hope that our, our Catholic schools can stay strong and stick to their Catholic convictions. We've seen that challenged in many places now where activists are trying to introduce ideology into those schools that's inconsistent with Catholic teaching. Um, But what the general public needs to understand is that when religion and religious schools flourish, the country flourishes. You all well know it's the Catholic Church that brought the university system, higher education, Mm -hmm. to the Mm -hmm. world, that brought libraries, that brought organized health (laughs) care, hospitals, exactly, (laughs) um, adoption and foster care and all these things. And it's because the folks who are in the Catholic Church do what they can to support the greater good, to make sure that everybody made in the image and likeness of God is treated with dignity and respect. And so everybody should be able to support the kind of religious liberty that's being advocated for in these cases. Well, John, you're so eloquent in your defense of the Church. I wish that you were arguing the Espinosa case in front of the Supreme Court. I'm very sorry that you're not. And thank you so much, John, for joining us today on Conversations with Consequences. It's been wonderful listening to you and, and really starting to understand these really complicated cases, but that means so much to us. Well, thank you so much for having me. God bless all of you and all of your listeners. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with us tomorrow on the first Sunday of Lent. We will join Jesus in the desert tomorrow. Most of us have no desire to go to the desert, certainly for no more than a brief visit. At a spiritual level, however, we should always have a great love for the desert, because the desert is what helps us to understand the 40-day pilgrimage of Lent, which we join and imitate Jesus in the desert, and ponder the fruits of what he learned so that we might apply them to our life. To go into the desert is increasingly difficult for people today, however. We're so connected that if we're out of cell phone range for a minute, we can start to feel lost. Well, the Lord is not calling us physically to go to the Sahara. He is calling us to the state of the desert to remove ourselves from distractions, from the television, computer, radio, newspaper, and the various things that may be fine in themselves, but crowd our lives with so much noise that we can't hear God and so much clutter that we can't see Him. The first temptation we face each Lent is refuse to go into the desert with Christ, to think that our Lent can be complete if, for example, all we do is give up chocolate or potato chips. First big hurdle is to hear Christ's voice from the desert saying, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest for a while. The next lesson we need to grasp is that we're supposed to be bear fruit from our time in the desert. That leads us to the gospel of Jesus' temptations in the desert by the devil. St. Matthew could have only known if Jesus had told him. Jesus prayed and fasted for an incredible 40 days, which obviously would have left him physically weak and famished. It was at this moment of physical weakness that the devil came to him to tempt him. In the temptations Jesus suffered and later described to his disciples, the devil brought out in a pristine form the types of temptations that Christ would undergo in his public ministry and that each of us undergoes in life. By focusing on how Christ responded, we too can learn how to receive his mercy and help so that we might be able to react as Jesus did. The first temptation was aimed right at Jesus' tremendous hunger after 40 days of eating almost nothing. 
If you are the son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread, the devil said. Jesus had come to save people, to feed their most important hunger, the hunger of their souls. And Satan was in trying to induce him to become a baker rather than a savior. To feed people's physical hunger would be a great way to win a crowd and become popular. But Jesus himself was already living off a greater source of food. He was preparing to train his disciples to seek this same celestial nutrition. Man does not live on bread alone, Jesus replied, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. The same insight he passed on to the crowds when they were following him to have their stomachs satiated. Do not work for the food that perishes, he said in Capernaum, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. All of us need to remember what this greatest food source of all is. Lent is the time in which we grow in our trust for God's providing, that he loves us more than the lilies of the field and the birds of the year, that he will give us each day our daily bread, so that the devil is not able to tempt us by our tummies. In the second temptation, the devil tried to tempt Jesus to test God the Father. If you are the son of God, he chortled. Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you lest you dash your foot against a stone. This is the temptation to be presumptuous with God, to do something reckless and make us expect God to rescue us from it every time, to recreate our relationship with God on our terms rather than his. Then when God doesn't seem to respond to that situation because such behavior harms us, the devil uses it to try to divide us even further from God. For example, some of us can smoke a pack of cigarettes a day for several decades, then expect God to cure us of lung cancer simply because we ask him with our hands folded. Jesus passed on to his disciples his response to this temptation of the devil so that we could make it our own. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Rather than presumptuously throwing ourselves down from precipices, Lent is a time in which we trustingly throw ourselves up into God's outstretched, merciful arms. The third temptation of the devil presented Jesus with a vision of all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, All these I shall give you if you will prostrate yourselves and worship me. He was about to announce that his kingdom is at hand, but the father of lies was proposing to Jesus a shortcut, another way, an easier way. The devil likewise tempts us to compromise our relationship with God in order to get ahead or get what we want. He promises power, prestige, profit, or privilege. If only we compromise a relationship with God and his moral law and serve the ruler of this world. Jesus rejected this temptation, firstly saying, Get away, Satan. It is written, The Lord your God shall you worship, and him alone shall you serve. Jesus told us about this struggle so that we could learn from him how to know, love, and serve God. God in his mercy liberally extends to us the grace of conversion lent, so that we might recognize the idols the devil places before us, turn away from them, and turn toward the true God, serving him with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength. How do we imitate and live Jesus' responses to the devil and grow in strength against temptation? Jesus tells us in St. Mark's Gospel that some devils are expunged only by prayer and fasting. That's why on Ash Wednesday, the church presents before us the need for us to pray, to fast, and to give of ourselves and what we have toward others. The devil seeks always to trick us to disorder our relationship with ourselves, with others, and with God. And fasting, almsgiving, and prayer are the respective antidotes. The more we fast and place our spiritual nourishment over material food, the less vulnerable we will be tempted by bread and earthly pleasures. The more we sacrifice ourselves and our belongings for the good of others, the less prone we will be to giving into the devil's seduction to give us power and control over others. The more we pray to God and seek to know and do his will, the less assailable we will be to the devil's traps presumptuously to force God's hand. These three traditional practices of Lent are a great remedy, a merciful medicine to the evil one's poison. That's why we need to make bold resolutions in Lent with regard to all three. Lent is an annual spiritual boot camp in the desert that the church gives us so that we might train with Jesus and follow his example to be victorious in the most important battle of all, a blessed Lent. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. You can read his homilies there and also listen to the audio. You can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. Tune in every Saturday at 5 p.m. on your EWTN local affiliate or on Sirius Channel 130. And of course, you can listen to this show as a podcast. Go to catholicassociation.org slash podcast or find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're called Conversations with Consequences. <laughs>